From KCRW, this is Greater L.A. I'm Steve Chiatakis with a show that connects you to the people and places of Southern California. You know, it ain't easy being funny when you have to be. But for some folks, it comes just naturally. You won Best Actress. Have you ever thought of aiming higher and trying to win Best Actor? Um, I, yeah. Good question. It is good. It's thought-provoking. That's <laughs> a funny fella named Zach with a funny last name, doing an interview show between two ferns. Zach's been in the movies, too. Most recently, he portrayed a billionaire toy maker in the smash hit Beanie Bubble. Genius is 1% inspiration, 99% presentation. That's not how the saying goes. It's not how the saying goes. Actor and comedian Zach Galifianakis has had a long and varied career in Hollywood, and tonight he is giving back to comedy, specifically to fellow comedians joining Patton Oswalt and Sarah Silverman and so many others at the El Rey for a sold-out show to raise money for Comedy Gives Back. That's a nonprofit that offers resources to comedians who might need support. And, of course, comedians do need some support. The man himself joins us right now to talk about it. Hi, Zach. Good day. Good day Steve. to you. Good day. Good, Good day. day. Thanks for coming. Thanks for having radio me. radio station to Thanks do for this. I, did you see? I brought in a fern. You brought in one just almost one fern. dead fern. <laughs> It looks a lot like my career, <laughs> to be honest. No, uh, no, no, no. Don't say that. Um, but, yeah, just one is confusing. Uh, but you couldn't have bothered for another one? Or? I, well, we only had one. At, hmm. at, and thankfully, Elena Shatkin, who who does good food, she's our uh, producer for good food. She had a fern, an almost dead fern, on her desk. And so we grabbed it. Did you see the trail of ferns, dead fern leaves? All <laughs> No, I didn't, I didn't notice that. You should that. have followed that all the way over here. I didn't notice anyway, that, yeah. but it's a nice touch. Oh, yeah, I do see that now. You see it yeah, now? Yeah, I see yeah, it, yeah. yeah. I forgot to tell you, you have to vacuum that up. I, I don't have a problem. I used okay. to be a house cleaner. Did you really? Ago. Yeah. All right. Um, but now you're a comedian. Do you do you like that word? Yeah, I mean, I mean to be introduced as it. Yeah, he's a comedian. Uh, no, I don't. That doesn't bother me. Yeah. No, could you say comic instead? That's like comic. Is that better? Classier. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? Yeah, comic, humorist, no one's satirist. Ever, no, no one's ever said that. You don't like that? No, no. Mm-mm. Comedy gives back. This is all right. So I want to talk about this because you're doing the show tonight. That's correct. Over at the El Rey. Yes. And this is a, a resource for comedians who have fallen on tough times. It is a safety net. I think during the pandemic, what happened was uh, this organization kind of sprang up out of the need of seeing comics not paying rent. Uh, you know, a lot of people suffered during the pandemic. You couldn't you couldn't do a show. No, it was hard to do. Yeah, it was hard. People's uh, jobs dried up like a lot of other professions. So, you know, in comics uh, in uh, sometimes we could have used the support before then. You know, we're not a very organized group, uh, but um Comedy Gives Back has uh, sprung up, and it's really kind of been a, a wonderful organization uh, to lend a hand to comics in need. What are you going to be doing? Like, is it just getting up there on stage and just being as funny as you can be? To, tonight? having to be, yeah. I've bombed so many times at the El Rey before. Have you? Um, I, remember, I remember the bad shows. But not um, the good ones. I, sometimes I'll remember the good ones, but the, the bad shows are always a long ride home. <laughs> So anyway, I'm I'm more than delighted to to be here and talk about uh, this this show and also the the work that. Listen, I'm just a comedian. Uh, excuse me, comic, comic, humorist, humorist sat- yeah. satirist uh, that um, is here to represent. But the hard work is done by uh, these these ladies that have uh, 
brought this together, uh, Zoe Friedman, uh, Jody Lieberman, and uh, Amber J. Lawson are the real kind of stalwarts. That's a good KCRW word. Stalwart. Of the co- comedy community. You stalwart like is a good... In the comic community, the humorous community. The humorous community. Yeah. So they, uh, they're they really nice ladies. The fact that they thought to do this is uh, speaks very highly of them, and uh, they saw a need, and uh, us as comics are trying to band together to help. What was it like for you as a comic starting out? Um, a lot of tuna fish sandwiches, uh, peanut butter and jelly? Well, when I was starting out in New York, I wouldn't have a token for the subway, so I just would walk to my shows. I get paid very little and then spend it on a 40. Back then, it was the romance of performing. I didn't really think much about not having anything. It just was great. I loved it. Were you like one of those like wide-eyed, though? You were like, I'm going to be a comic someday. No, I moved to New York to try to figure out how to be an actor. From North Carolina. Yeah, but I was wide-eyed. I mean, I was very naive and like, oh my God, (laughs) New York. I loved it. Did you talk like that, really? Did you have a Southern accent? Yeah, I mean, I I have one, especially when I go back. I it just it's an easier way to talk. You know what I mean? It's just the bourbon brings it out of you, doesn't it? Well, when I used to drink, it definitely yeah. your tongue gets lazier. I just an easier way to to speak, I think. But I remember moving to New York. My friend A. D. Miles, who I moved to New York with out of college, the first couple of weeks we were there. I mean, I say we didn't have any money. We didn't have any money. Like maybe a dollar is what we had. But one night we had forty dollars. We had 40 bucks, Steve, and we we're in... A dollar for every ounce of beer. <laughs> exactly. Right? So we meet this guy, I think it was in Soho, and he had a camera for sale, yeah. a video camera. And we thought, oh, if we just buy this video camera, we could make our little shorts. It was still in a box. It was shrink-wrapped and everything. But he had stolen it, and, you know, he wanted to... So we get... You're not supposed to admit that, by the way. Well, it was pretty clear. I mean, we we knew we were buying something hot, but we were idiots. And <laughs> so, um, we get home. We open up the camera, and it was a brick. No way. Yeah, you got ripped off. Yeah. So when you say naive, yeah, we were we were pretty stupid and naive. But you learn the city, and then you kind of get hardened. What did you do with the brick? We shot a couple movies <laughs> with it, and it they never edited. <laughs> No, uh, what did we? I don't know what we did. I'm sure we we probably tried to eat it. We were so hungry. <laughs> oh man! So that's why the importance of comedy gives back, right? That's so. Yeah, with this safety net now, um, I think it's certainly back then there was nothing like that, and I think having comics to have something to to fall back on or rely on or knowing that that's there is is really important. I think comedians in general can be a kind of a, a sensitive ilk. And the world we're kind of all living in now is uh, hard for sensitive minds. We're both Greek Southerners, Mm -hmm. which is such an, I don't know if it's ironic or, but you and I spoke about this before. And it's like growing up, like, like people in the South just didn't know what Greek was. No, they didn't know what that was, especially in where I was. And I was telling you that there was a mailman in my town named Gus Kahulis. Kahulis. And my dad was said, I think you're Greek. And Gus was like, yeah, I was wondering what that name was. His own name. <laughs> his own name. He didn't have a connection to his dad. <laughs> yeah. But so there was no Greeks in our town. It was just us. Uh, but I'm, I'm half I'm half Greek and half 
Appalachian. <laughs> Are you really? <laughs> very, what does that mean? It's a, very odd, it's a well, very odd combination. No, I mean, well, we all have a mix of, actually, not, I don't have a mix of anything. But, I'm, I'm purebred. But, but the southernness, I always find it interesting when cultures, you know, Greek is a culture, obviously. Southern has a, it's called, to, those things when they mix are always very interesting to me. Was it hard? And I and I had this too when I when I started out in commercial radio I didn't use my real last name I used a pseudonym I was Steve St George I was canonized you I was asshole no I well <laughs> now I mean I'm just saying what was I gonna do it was a Birmingham Alabama oh right and There's the news that. director was like we can't use your last name on the radio and he said what's your middle name and I said George and he took his pencil do I have a pencil he took his pencil and he tapped me on the head with this pencil and he said I canonized thee. St. George. That's that's not bad. That's right? not bad. Yeah, that's yeah. so when did you drop St. George? When I got into public radio because my first boss in public radio 20 some odd 25 years ago said, "We don't do that here." Oh, good. We use our real names here. And I said, "Well, right. do you really want my real name on the radio?" And yeah. He said, "Yeah, we do." Yeah, I could never thought about changing my I just never thought, "Oh, I should change." But now some of my family members probably wished <laughs> <laughs> that have changed changed my last name because there's only 27 of us in America. Well, there's more now, but when I was growing up, but you a, counted them? Yeah, I used to could count them because they were all my first cousins. But right. now people have had kids. Yeah, and there was only 27 of us in America with that last name. But wow. Now it's probably up to maybe 80. I don't know. Did you embrace your Greek as a kid? Very much so because. It was more mysterious because we were in a town of not a lot of that. So, and I loved my Greek side. I mean, I love both of my both sides of my family, but the Greek side is very funny and fun and quite warm. Uh, so, yeah, I, w- I loved. I and I I was fascinated with going to Greece as a kid. So I I saved up and mowed lawns and delivered papers and and got to Greece on my own with my eighteen year old cousins, and I had. The best. Time. I'm sure you did. Oh my gosh. Yeah. The best. It's but a, I miss it. I it's miss a Greece. great life. It's a great life over there. I mean, it, it can be very difficult too. There are, you know, there's not a lot of money. Right. Well, I don't think that they they don't care about. I don't it, though. think the Greeks are capitalist. And to get to get political for a minute, I think when the European Union happened, it shocked Greek system. They are just not of that. They kind of roll their eyes at. What do you mean you're not going to take a nap at lunch? You know, and I think the world should learn. And by the way, the Italians still take a nap at lunch too. Yeah, and so do the Mexicans, and so do a lot of different. The people. cooler societies, the cooler yes, societies the ones do. that know how to live properly do, <laughs> and they live to be a hundred three. Yes, and yeah. so we should look into that. I mean, there, yeah. there's some cues there yeah. for sure. Yeah, I mentioned the the role of Ty Warner in Beanie Bubble, the smash hit. So, your introduction, you, like you said that? smash you, hit. Wait, I actually writing, I wrote down, down, wrote down, I wrote your... down smash hit to say, uh, where's the proof of that one? <laughs> there is no proof. Yeah, there's no proof. It was a serious role for you. You have done some serious roles. I tried. Do you like it? It's easier. Is it? I think it's easier. Because comedy, I mean, I don't know. It's all, when you don't know what you're doing in general, none of it's easier. But um I don't comedy takes an extra layer that you need a response because some people just don't get it. Of course, because comedy is not for it's not I mean, some people don't understand my comedy and frankly sometimes I don't understand it, but it's okay, but comedy is uh it's opinionated. 
drama is not as opinionated to me. Um, so it's hard. I think drama's, um, uh, I'd like to do it more, but I mean, I'd like to get, I mean, the, the really great dramatic actors. I'm not saying that's easy. I'm just saying, I don't know if a lot of dramatic actors can do comedy. And I know a lot of, and I know some comedians that can do drama. The the old story about Airplane, the movie Airplane, yep. from, and I, I interviewed the directors, the Abraham, was it the Zucker brothers? Zuckers. I yeah, think. the Zuckers and, and Abraham. And they did a, I think it was a 40th anniversary or something on this show. And we talked about it. But And I said, Peter Graves, serious actor, right? Robert Culp, serious actor. And they got him for Airplane and they didn't know what to do with it. They had no, they were perfect for it. Yeah. But they didn't know what to do with it, with the roles. Yeah. It's, you, you, sometimes that needs heavy direction because I think actors and comics are different. I think they're, they're, their personalities are, are, are different, I've noticed. Um, but the Ty Warner thing was a, you had a comedy bend to it, but I tried to take it more seriously than just doing a comedy, that one. You have anything coming up? I'm going to be at, uh, Shakey's Pizza on Santa Monica. Are you really? Uh, just for the buffet. They actually they closed the one. They I did in Hollywood. Yeah. Oh, they did. You know, it's going to be a Tesla um, supercharger. <laughs> no, I, I'm not kidding you. Uh, it's going to be a Tesla supercharger, mm. and they're going to have a diner there with people of, allegedly on roller skates. The 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 charging. I know I wasn't asked to come here to give my opinion <laughs> on what's wrong with the infrastructure. I have a I have a electric car. You I have do a, a Volkswagen. Uh, the ID four? No, I forget what it's called. Okay. Uh, one of the low end. Well, you know. Uh, Do you like it? Uh, it's the best. Yeah. But it takes four hours to charge. The battery swap is what they're going to have to do. Yeah. You drive up and here's your new battery and thanks. No one's going to sit around and watch someone rollerblades, or skate, or skates. For but 30... if they bring you a hamburger, right, while you're doing it, like at a you say that to me specifically, Steve. I don't know. <laughs> no. You... No, uh, uh, I don't know. I, I just look, think I've that eaten that's quite all. Quite a few hamburgers in my time, so you know this is good. I... This is a good hamburger town. It really is. It's funny that Los Angeles is known for health, food, and fitness when it's a great cheeseburger donut town. It's Southern California, San Bernardino, like the McDonald's brothers, right? They had they and I, what else started here? In and out, of course. Do you ever go to Apple Pan? On the West Side on Pico Boulevard, yeah. I religiously. You do? Do you like the do you like, I like the apple pan? Because they just haven't changed any. They this, haven't changed. They, I don't even think they. It's changed. a great burger. It is. It's a great, and it, their fries are good too. It, it's it's simple. Are you uh, an In and Out guy? Uh, I don't want to get controversial. Uh, I don't like chains in general. Really? I think they should outlaw chains. Outlaw? Yes. Wow. I think. Listen, I when I saw what chains did to my hometown when yeah. Walmart and all them came in. And I, it made a bad, put a terrible taste. In well, and as somebody who now, my father, I grew up in the restaurant business, which is mm-hmm. not surprising, mm-hmm. right? But and my dad, he loved going to Red Lobster. Now go figure, go figure. He, I've never been to a. Is he good? loved the biscuits, and he loved. He, he was like, you know, let's go to Red Lobster as a you. kind of a fancier place. Yeah, I don't know, fancy. I mean, what kind know. of restaurant did he have? He had diners, yeah, you know, and a Greek place. He had a Greek place in Alabama. Yeah, that my, didn't that didn't do as well as probably it should have, but it was Alabama and it was a Greek place. It was new, like gyros and that kind of stuff. We did gyros, we did pasticcio, we did baklava. Uh, baklava. Oh, my mother used to make baklava for it. Yeah. Oh man, it was great. A place mom, called Georgie's. Does your mom still cook? She does. She does. I had some of it for Christmas. It was really nice. Oh man. What about yours? My mom learned Greek. My mom learned how to 
cook Greek food. I mean, she's Scotch Irish, but uh, she learned very well how to cook Greek food. It was delicious. Yeah. Was it was it hard? I mean, growing up, it's so you know the thing about performing, and this and this kind of applies to radio too, because you're you're constantly performing in a microphone, into a microphone. How, was it hard? For, were you a shy kid? I was very shy, um, especially around adults, and I kind of still am. Um, but I can my, sense the awkwardness right now. My I was shy. I just I was shy and quiet, but I got. As far as comedy goes, I was really influenced by my Greek family, to be yeah. honest with you, my cousins and my outgoing. Aunts. They were, and they knew how to make people laugh, and I observed it because I thought it was kind of special. And I thought, not to monetize it, but I thought, wow, if I could figure out how to do that for a living. Because my father was very, very wise and, you, you know, would tell me things like, just do something you love. Just do something you love and try to figure it out. That's what my dad did too. And I got, I, he was so right. It was just simple. They never tried to dissuade me. Me either. They didn't, yeah. My father, they were so, both of my parents so supportive. Yeah, yeah, me too. I mean, I failed my last course in college by one point, had a nervous breakdown, and wanted to just move to New York, and my parents were completely supportive of it. They were just said, hey, you did your end almost, meaning you. I, they wanted me to go get a college degree. Did you get one? I failed by by one point. One point. So you this is actually a Greek story. So, um, <laughs> my brother was on the Greek Orthodox softball team, and they were playing the Southern Baptists the night before my final exam. Oh wow! I must have gotten into one of those forty as I was talking about earlier, and I was heckling the Southern Baptist. The professor was on that team, <gasps> and I I. I got a 59. I needed a 60. Are you, do you think he did it on purpose? I went and asked. I went the next day and begged, begged for. He wouldn't do it. He goes, No, you were drunk at that. <laughs> Wait, he failed you because well, of. Well, no, I certainly was not good at, I think it was pre calculus. It was calculus, oh, and I wow. didn't even have a calculator. You're supposed to have a calculator in these classes. Scientific, yeah. And um, he never passed me, and it's haunted. It hasn't haunted me, but just one point from graduating. Because so that's easily rectified. How? By going go, by go taking getting the a class course again. Yeah, but it's right? calculus. Yeah, <laughs> I don't, you know what I mean. Like, yeah. If it were, but you're, you're Greek. Math math comes naturally to you. You Archimedes. sound so much like my father right now. Archimedes. My father was so disappointed in his sons who did not. We couldn't add any. We were not mathematical, and my father was. Yeah, my dad too. And he was very disappointed in that part of us. But uh, yeah, I wish I, my 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 boys are both have math minds. I, I can, they do. I feel like they do. I'm yeah. hoping they do. Hopefully, it skips a generation. Did you ever learn what Archimedes said, supposedly, allegedly, no. when the Roman soldier right before the Roman soldier killed him no. on the beach? Which is, um, he was doing a uh, formula on the beach in the sand with a stick, uh, with a circle. And he said, My father told me that. He taught me that years, like when I was a kid, which means don't mess with my circle. Hmm. And the Roman soldier killed him on the beach. Now, that, I don't know if it's folklore. I don't know if it's true. By the way, every Greek story ends with, <laughs> I don't know if that's folklore or if that's true. <laughs> they all end like that. Because the Greeks are the greatest exaggerators of all time. I think so. Yes. I think so. It has been such a joy to be here with you. Oh, that you came to the radio station for this for this special occasion. Of course. I, I, yeah. Well, in full disclosure, 
there's free firewood out here. There is. And on the west side. Yeah. And I know where to get it. I thought, oh, if I go talk to Steve in the studio, I can go get my free firewood. And I'm not going to tell people where it is. There's an ulterior motive. Yeah. But yeah. no, it's nice to chat with you, Steve. You're a nice yeah. man. You're a nice man as well. Thank you. Afkaristopolo. Afkaristopolo. Yeah. Thank you so much, Zach Galifianakis. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. Back with Greater L.A. from KCRW, I'm Steve Chiotakis. I'm here now with KCRW reporter Anna Scott, who has covered housing and homelessness for us for more than eight years. And after this week, she is moving on. And Anna's here to discuss what has changed and what hasn't changed in that eight years on the housing and homelessness beat. Hi, Anna. Hey, Steve. So tell us, what has changed or has anything changed? Yes, a lot has changed, a lot. So it's easy to forget now that... The huge encampments we see just simply as part of the landscape in L.A. nowadays weren't really typical, at least not outside of Skid Row, before about eight years ago. You know, I I remember in 2015 doing a story that was basically just a slice of life inside this one large encampment on the west side. Today, a street near the 405 freeway and Santa Monica Boulevard called Cotner Avenue is lined with dozens of tents and living quarters cobbled together from mattresses and tarps. It's a quiet commercial street with a gym, music studios, a pot shop, and Lincoln Briggs. I'm a resident down here in Hobotown, as I refer to it. It's much easier to live under a dumpster when you got your drink, you know, and it's a lot easier to roam endlessly when you're high. It does help. Help me forget. Help me numb. I would like for us to be able to get a porta potty, a dumpster, and a spigot of water. So at the time, back in 2015, this story was sort of novel because the encampment that I went into, it took up an entire city block. It was really enormous and that was unusual. And honestly, now that story seems kind of quaint because there are encampments like this all over LA and we just take it for granted. And so in that time, homelessness, as you know, has also become the dominant political issue in L.A. because it's so much more visible and because it's so much worse than it was. In in 2015, there were about 44,000 unhoused people in the whole county. Now it's more like 75,000, which is a very dramatic increase. And so we find ourselves now in 2024 with this central tension that's really driving a lot of policy fights and discussions around homelessness of how do you manage street encampments and this enormous number of people living outside when you still don't have enough permanent affordable housing for them to go to. And I don't just mean subsidized housing. I mean, L.A. still has a housing crisis that's at the root of the homelessness crisis. And the city and the county lacks even just regular cheap apartments. So 
On top of all that, if we look at just the last few years, there have also been other big developments that have changed the picture even more. Like what? Like what? what I mean, we have seen sort of the iterations, right? But specifically, um, there have been some changes. Yeah, big ones. So one big thing is that hotel and motel rooms for people experiencing homelessness are now a big part of the picture. And that's an innovation that came about because of the COVID-19 pandemic. There was also a legal case against the city and the county for their inaction on homelessness that uh, that you're probably familiar with. It's, it's known as the Alliance lawsuit, and that was settled, resulting in more shelter beds around L.A. And also the state has kicked in w- more funding um, for local governments to fight homelessness, which hasn't been the case in the past. So all of that has come about just in the last few years. And one city council person that I talked to this week as I was thinking about this conversation uh, has been happy to see all of that movement. That's Nithya Raman. She chairs the city council's Homelessness and Housing Committee. All of that has led to much more activity at the city level on these issues. And then the new mayor came in with a focus on homelessness. And so I think, yes, there is a lot more momentum on this issue than before. But I think it's still going to take a lot of work before we're able to see you know, what that means for how we tackle homelessness and how we actually reduce homelessness as a city. You know, Anna, she mentioned the mayor, Karen Bass, who's now been on the job for a year now. Has she approached homelessness differently, do you think, compared to Eric Garcetti, um, whom she took over from? In some ways, Karen Bass is continuing certain things that Eric Garcetti started, but she's doing it bigger, you could say. So, Garcetti added a couple dozen shelters across the city when he was mayor under his Abridge Home program. And Karen Bass has also focused a lot on expanding the shelter system. And she has her Inside Safe program, which is the effort to place people from encampments into temporary rooms, mostly hotel, motel rooms. And she says more than 14,000 people have moved off the streets since she took office. That's through Inside Safe and also other programs. So there are some things she's doing that are continuing efforts that were started under Eric Garcetti. But she's also part of a really big policy shift that's happening in L.A. just over the last few years, which is this very intense focus on getting people off the streets, even if it's just for the night. So listen to how Valicia Adams-Kellum talks about this, right? She's the head of the L.A. Homeless Services Authority, which is the city county agency that deals with this issue. And we also had a conversation this week. We believe that leaving people on the streets suffering is wrong, and it's grown the nature of this terrible uh, humanitarian crisis that we're facing. And so you do hear us talking a lot more about the difference between unsheltered homelessness and sheltered homelessness. What she's saying is that we're not waiting around anymore to build enough permanent housing to solve homelessness, that we need to focus on getting people off the streets right now. We know that our our goal ultimately is to get people housed permanently, but that we must relieve people um, from living uh, day to day on the streets. So that, that really is different from housing first, which was, you know, you find permanent housing as the first goal and then you build it and it might take a while to do that to get people off the street, right? Yeah. And it's important to say that housing first still is what's considered best practice. And it still is what drives homelessness policy from the federal level all the way on down to the city level. And there's a lot of research to back it up. 
But now, if you talk to city county officials, what they'll say is that we need it all, that we have to deal with this reality of having a huge unsheltered population and that we have to look at shelter not as a stepping stone to housing, which is how it was looked at maybe a few decades ago, but as a better waiting room than the streets because we just don't have the permanent housing to properly do housing first like we would in a perfect world. It's also worth noting, though, that providing shelter for everyone, like they do in New York City, for example, is really expensive and it can become its own permanent system. So there are pitfalls in all of this. And for a lot of people, if homelessness is out of sight, it's out of mind, right? But not for the people experiencing it. So I want to give the last word here to somebody else I talked to this week, LaRomeo Sawyer. He's somebody who fell into homelessness for the first time about a year ago after an eviction. Now he's in a permanent apartment in Culver City. But before moving in there, he went from camping under a freeway overpass to camping at what's called a safe sleep site. That's a a designated campground that serves as a shelter. So it's off public sidewalks. It has like a parking lot or something like that. Exactly. It has bathroom access and meals and social services. And I asked him what the difference is between that safe sleep shelter and the apartment he's in now. The difference is you have a roof over your head, you have a bathroom of your own. Um, it's a it's a lot of good things about being here that's different from the safe sleep. See, with the safe sleep, you're still in the tent, but you're not on the street. So for the people suffering the most from this crisis, there's a huge distinction between going somewhere temporary and going to a permanent home. It's not all the same at all. Yeah. Well, the problem is still there. So many years later, and here we are, still talking about it. By the way, a topic that we're going to keep covering on KCRW. And uh, I want to thank you for all your years of covering it, Anna Scott, our KCRW reporter, moving on as well. Anna, thank you. Well, thank you so much, Steve. Really appreciate it. Well, today isn't just Anna's last day. Today is also our last episode of Greater LA. The station is making a programming change that you're going to experience starting Monday on KCRW. And I'm joined now by Greater LA's managing producer, Christian Bordal, who was here with me when we launched this show nearly five years ago. Actually, we were launching it five years ago, weren't we? Yes, we were yeah. indeed. Yes, we were working as of five years ago. <laughs> I, you know, the, the thing about it was and is, is this has been a labor of love for so many people. That's for sure. Yeah. yeah. And, and you know, before we go, I think we need to appreciate all of the people who have made the show really what it is, like our wonderful, hardworking colleague producers, Juliana Mayo and Zoe Matthew, um, and those who came before them, Jenna Cagle and Catherine Barnes. Amy Ta, right? And mm-hmm. Danny Chirguayo and all the folks on the web and social media teams, of course, Absolutely. the man pushing all the important buttons. Who's doing it right now? Phil Richards. Phil, thank you. Engineer Ray Guana, who's mixed many of these great sound-rich reported stories that we've had on the show. Sonia Geis, who edits all of the wonderful KCRW reporters. Anna Scott, whom you heard today. Megan Jamerson, Robin Estrin, Kaylee Wells. Yeah, and I want to give a special shout-out to, to the original architect of Greater LA. His name is Quinn O'Toole, who really pushed to make the show happen back then. And, and you know, I know we're all... So sad to see this show go. We've had a great time here. We've made a lot of good radio shows, I think. But there is one silver lining 
Steve, people will still be able to hear you covering local stories here at the station, right? I am not going anywhere. I'm sticking around here at KCRW. You will hear me in the afternoons, which is ironically how I began this journey at KCRW so many years ago, 12 years ago for that matter. remember it well. And uh, you'll still hear, by the way, the the critical journalism, those those reporters that we mentioned, they're not going anywhere. So we're still going to be covering the things that are important to Southern California during Morning Edition and All Things Considered. Um, So very important going forward. Yeah. And before we get too sad about the end of things, let's have a little fun here. Let's go back to the Hmm. the day nearly five years ago when we kicked off the show show that that connects you to the people and places of Southern Southern California. California. At the end of the Harbor Freeway, just across the Vincent Thomas Bridge, are the ports of Los Angeles and Long Beach. And right between those ports, at the appropriately named Terminal Island, is the spot where Southern California's cars go to die. Later in the show, we're going to be talking about the future of cars in L.A., cars that come into the ports by the tens of thousands every year. But first, let's talk about the vehicles at the port that are going out, or the crumpled, broken pieces of them anyway. Well, most of these cars, I think think a good percentage, maybe 90-plus percent of the cars here in Southern California are going to have to pass through one of our shredders. Five to six hundred cars get shredded here every single day. Tony Cuevas is the one who, with the touch of a button, pulverizes those vehicles into oblivion. We're across the channel from uh, the port where we receive all the new cars. When I first started working here about 19 and a half years ago, I seen a lot of the old cars coming in, and now those are the cars we've been shredding for the last past five years. So you actually really do see all the new cars come in, and then you see all the, the cars come out of here shredded. Shredded means just what you think it does, like that paper shredder that you have at home or the office. A giant mechanical claw, like the one inside the game you always lose at in the arcade, it takes a flattened car and puts it on a conveyor belt to get ripped into pieces. Inside the control room, Tony Cuevas sits in this large, important-looking chair behind thick, unbreakable glass with a bird's-eye view. This is like Game of Thrones. You're in the seat. Yeah, I'm in the metal throne right here. The iron throne, they call it, right? And it swivels? It swivels. I could look down. We have 10 cameras above, so I could be able to see the downstream, the in-feed. I could see what the guys are feeding me. You have a lot of power in that chair, don't you? Yes, I do. Yeah, you do. Look at all those levers and buttons. Oh, my. It's like I'm flying a plane. You don't let visitors operate that machine, do you? Uh, not usually. <laughs> well, there's, there's a possibility. Case. Really? Can I sit in the chair? Sure. Here, we'll let you shred a car. Oh, my God. I get to shred a car? Oh, I'm, I'm sitting in the Game of Thrones. Oh, oh, it's comfortable, too, Tony. So the arcade claw is picking up the, the smashed car, yep. and he's going to put it on, the, on conveyor. the conveyor belt. Here it comes now. All right, here it comes. Oh, there it is. There so it now is. now you could grab that joystick there. Okay. This and, one. And bring it down. Bring it down. There and forward. There, you just shredded your first car. Wow! There's another one coming right behind it. Are so you just serious? Just hold it like that. Just hold it. Oh, my goodness. There it is. Oh! Whoa! Tony, you and I are taking cars off the road (laughs) in Los Angeles. 
it takes a while to make a car. And it takes me about 10 seconds to destroy it. That's another car. Do you feel sorry for some of these cars? It's like, oh, I don't want to destroy this. Has money in the bank for us. I see my bonus there going up the belt. SA Recycling makes its money, about 350 bucks per car, by selling its post-mortem bits and pieces to companies in Asia. Think Korea, Vietnam, India. And so what do they become when they leave here? It could be a number of things. It could be your new refrigerator, you know? It could be uh, your new car. It could be anything. For now, those bits are stacked up into piles. Piles of aluminum, piles of clean steel or copper or brass. China used to take a lot of that material, but it's not taking much anymore, partly because of a dramatic change in their import policy last year and partly because of the Trump administration's trade dispute. Fernando Ruiz is the recycling plant's general manager. He has to figure out who to sell those piles to. A year ago, we had to wait like a little bit longer, but... Because of the tariffs? Part of that, you know. And also, you know, that somehow China affects the market worldwide, you know. Sometimes the demand for this material decreases, and that's why we're struggling a little bit. But um, for the most part, our goal at the end of the month, we had to make sure we ship out everything. So it's really affecting your bottom line here. I will say so. I mean, and we're struggling. We used to have China for years and years, you know, and now, you know, we have to look for some other routes or some other places to sell our product. For now, they're making this work, and chances are still good that someday that car you're driving, maybe while listening to me on the radio right now, will wind up here in Tony Cuevas's shredder. And you see all those cars on those freeways, and you're stuck in front of one or in back of one, and you're like, what are you thinking when you come to this place every day? I'm thinking, I'm thinking pretty soon you'll be mine, right? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, L.A.